Heavenly Father, we worship you and praise you this morning, Lord, because you are mighty and you are worthy. Father, we praise you, Lord. We thank you for this wonderful day, for gathering your saints together here this morning, Lord, to worship you, Lord, and to open your word and learn more about you, Father. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified by this morning's service, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon us and reveal to us the truths within your word, Father. Let's pray, Father, that you would bless us and that you would be glorified. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This morning's message will be in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 47. I realize this is a large chunk of scripture, so you'll have to bear with me a bit. But I think it's important here to get the full context of the scripture for this morning's message. The focus of this morning's message will be in the second half of the text, verses 42 through 47, where we see the early church's formation and rapid growth. So we won't spend a lot of time in the first half of the text, but I don't think you can really get the context of it and the full weight of it without uh, reading the first half. So you may even notice a little bit of overlap here. Okay, you may, uh, you may notice a little bit of overlap here from our baptism service last month as Pastor Ken covered a portion of this text when we gathered together here in the pavilion and we baptize some new believers to the faith. Uh, this morning's text begins with Peter and his sermon to the Jews who had witnessed those filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. There were men gathered together from many different nations, and they had heard the apostles speaking in many different languages, praising and worshiping God uh, for his mighty acts. They were astounded and perplexed but some sneered and said to one another, they must be drunk on new wine. Peter then explains to them that they are not drunk, but are filled with the Holy Spirit. So he begins by proclaiming who Christ is, and then he follows with a call to repentance. We then see the subsequent repentance and baptism of thousands. After their baptism, we get an account of the early church, what that looked like, and how rapidly they were growing. So the aim of this morning's message is to examine and to understand and hopefully emulate this model in our own church. The problems we are facing today in our time, and more specifically in the United States, are not problems that should be overlooked. The modern American church is more apt to be apathetic in our faith and in our vision for the church because we are too consumed with everything around us, with all of the noise of society, with all of the distractions that this world has to offer. 
with what is and what isn't politically correct. We oftentimes have lost sight of what we have been saved from and at what cost. So as we proceed with this morning's message, please prepare your hearts and prepare your minds. Listen to the movement of the Holy Spirit through this early church and this tidal wave that consumed and transformed them. So with that introduction, would you please stand if you are able out of reverence for the reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 47. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me in Hades, or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me, you will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. Here we are all witness of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and Peter and the rest, <clears throat> and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were gathered together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. 
Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So after their baptism, we get an account of the early church and what that looked like and how rapidly they were growing. Oh, excuse me. So to set the tone this morning, if you aren't familiar with where we are in the text, the apostles were gathered together for Pentecost when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they began to speak in tongues and a crowd had began to gather around them as they had heard the apostles praising and worshiping God in their own native languages. Now at first, the men had supposed that they were drunk, and this is where Peter steps in and proclaims that they are not drunk, but that they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this is where we pick up in this morning's text. By God's providence, he is filled with them with the Holy Spirit, causing them to worship him in many different languages so that a crowd might be gathered and the apostles have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. So I'm just going to reread verse 22 through 24 for a moment here. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God's miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. So Peter declares boldly who Christ is and the evidence to back it up. And notice here, Peter isn't pulling any punches. He says, you, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and to kill him. Peter has come a long way in just a few, more, few short months, hasn't he? Remember, Peter was the one who denied Christ three times just prior to the crucifixion. But a once timid Peter, who would shrink back from confrontation, is now boldly and unapologetically proclaiming the gospel with authority. Sorry, the wind is giving me issues here. Church, the gospel isn't some soft, fluffy invitation. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with Paul Washer, but he has a great quote regarding the gospel. He says that the gospel is not a suggestion, it is a command. Our God is a strong, mighty, and powerful God. When we share the gospel, it shouldn't be a light, soft-hearted, non-confrontational suggestion. We all have sinned against a holy God, and that sin is deserving of death. And the only freedom from that death 
is through Christ and the punishment that he took for us, for our sins. The sacrifice that was made for us demands repentance. And this is Peter's approach this morning in Acts. He doesn't suggest that maybe some of them had good intentions, but made mistakes. No. He calls everyone to repentance for the sin that they are guilty of. Notice here, Peter also points out that although these men sinned against God and killed Christ, it was at the same time God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You see, nothing happens outside of the will of God, even the death of his own son. Spurgeon says of this verse, it never occurred to Peter that God's determined plan and foreknowledge deprived people of the responsibility and guilt of their actions. If anyone should ask us when, when anything is according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, how can God blame the doer of it? We may ask the inquirer to say what the difficulty is. The inspired apostle Peter could see none, but when he was most vehement in charging these hearers with the guilt, yet at the same time, he said it was by God's determined plan and foreknowledge. Surely Peter would have been a bad pleader to introduce his argument, anything that could be readily construed as an excuse for those he is accusing. But there is no real excuse in it. The free agency of humans is as true as the predestination of God. The two truths stand forever. It is the folly of people to imagine that these two disagree. If we do wrong, we are accountable for the wrong. And that there is a providence who ordains everything does not take away from any person the full responsibility for anything that he or she does. You see, even though it was God's plan, that does not take away the fact that these men still sinned against God. The two can both exist at the same time. And if any still had doubts that Jesus truly was the Messiah, Peter then points to David and his prophecies concerning the Messiah to prove Jesus is the Christ. In verse 31 we read, seeing, that was to come, seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. He then continues in verse 32, God has raised this Jesus. We are all witness of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God, and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. So Peter quotes David, and then immediately points to Jesus as the one that David spoke of, declaring Christ's resurrection, the Son of God cannot be contained by death. And through him, through his atoning sacrifice, his Holy Spirit and the power of God, neither can we. Amen? Yeah. 
And here's the point when Peter takes the gloves off in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This Jesus, our Lord and Savior, proclaimed Lord and Messiah, whom you crucified. He doesn't tiptoe around it. They crucified him. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't try to soften the blow. The gospel is not a suggestion. It is a command. In verse, 30, verse 37 says, When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Now imagine this for a moment if you can. If you were an Israelite at the time, you had seen the many miracles that Jesus had performed. You had likely heard him preach. You maybe had even followed him for a while. But ultimately, when the leaders of the Jewish church went after him, you either went along with it, or you stood by and did nothing. Now you are beginning to understand who Jesus really was, and is, and the gravity of your sin. You took a part in crucifying the one and only Son of God, the promised Messiah that you have been looking forward to and learned about your whole life in synagogue. The weight of that sin. This morning's text says it pierced them to the heart. A study Bible I have says of verse 37 that they were stung with remorse at the enormity of the wickedness with which they had committed in the crucifixion and at the blindness with which the whole nation had closed their eyes to the teaching and prophecies which had spoken of the Messiah. They were filled with remorse and driven to repentance. But let's zoom out a little bit and get a better view of this whole picture. Did Christ's crucifixion come as a surprise to Jesus? Was God caught off guard when the Jews betrayed him and crucified his son? No. As Peter declared earlier, this was also God's providence. God had revealed to the prophets long ago that this would happen, and the people of Israel should have seen it coming as well. If you have your Bibles with, would you please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him no appearance that we should desire him he was despised and rejected by men a man of suffering who knew what sickness was he was like someone people turned away from he was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he bore our he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. 
we all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death. Because he had done no violence, and he had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the many as a spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Christ's crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection was all prophesied long before Peter, Peter's sermon to the Jews this morning. They all would have likely been familiar with this text. It was right in front of them the whole time. God, in his infinite grace and mercy, already had a plan in place for the atonement of our sins. You see, it was always God's plan that Christ be crucified. So although that these Jews were cut to the heart by the wickedness of their actions, this was always God's plan. Jesus willingly submitted to it. And why? What was the purpose? It was for your sin for my sin, for the sin of my children and their children's children, for the body of Christ, for the church. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you this morning, our sin should cut us to the heart, just like these men this morning. We should be stung with remorse over our sin. I think as modern-day Americans, we've been so desensitized to the weight and gravity of sin, we don't realize or we forget that it is our sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. This easy believism that we see cropping up in churches all over the country is missing the point. Salvation isn't simple. It's not, believe in Jesus, repeat this prayer after me. It's because of our sin that Christ had to be crucified. I can remember when I was a young adult, just a seedling of a Christian, I wasn't broken over my sin. Sure, I would feel guilt over my sin, 
But it wouldn't stop me from sinning and continuing. Now don't get me wrong. We will all sin from time to time. Nobody is perfect. But are we broken over our sin? Does it cut us to the heart? Or do we simply just pray for forgiveness, move on and do it all over again the next day? It's only once you've truly been broken over your sin, when you understand the gravity of your sin, when you can grasp that for you to have forgiveness from that sin, for you to have eternal life, that Christ had to suffer and endure death and humiliation on a cross, it's only when you understand that that you can truly repent. And that's what we see this morning in the text in verse 37. So they responded to Peter, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replies, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And that is what they did. The text says that those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to them that day. They didn't waste any time. They heard the gospel. They felt conviction over their sin. They repented and believed and were baptized. And God was faithful to deliver them and grant them his Holy Spirit. Amen. If you are here this morning and you're feeling conviction, if you're feeling remorse over your sin, if you are cut to the heart, I urge you, don't hesitate. Don't wait for another day. Repent and believe, and you will be granted eternal life. Praise God. And it doesn't stop there. Repenting and turning to Christ is just the beginning of the journey. So you see, for a successful Christian, you need discipleship. You need fellowship. You need the body of Christ. And we see that here in the next few verses. Let's look at verse 42 again together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The Greek word here for devoted used in verse 42 is proskaterio. Now for all you scholars out there, forgive me if I pronounce that wrong. But translated into English, it means to be steadfastly attentive unto something, or to give unremitting or incessant care to. So these newly converted Christians were steadfastly attentive to the apostles' teaching. They incessantly cared for each other, for the fellowship. They were devoted to breaking bread together. They were steadfast to meet together and to pray. They were so grateful and in such awe of God's grace and mercy on their own lives that they couldn't help themselves. They yearned to be together, to fellowship with one another. They were hungry for God's word, and they were overfilled with joy 
And they were committed to one another. They loved one another. Does this sound like the typical American church? Are we hyper-focused on the teachings of the scriptures? Are we devoted to breaking bread together? Or do we just show up on Sundays for a couple hours and then go back to our daily lives? Are we more devoted to the NFL playoffs than to discipling one another? We can do better, church. There is always room for improvement, for a reorganizing of the priorities in our lives. And as convicting as this may be, it should also be encouraging. I'm excited, church. I'm excited to see what the Lord might do in our lives and in our church if we take more seriously our dedication to one another and to the body of Christ. We can see what the result of dedication and steadfastness was for the early church here this morning in verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all, as any had need. They were filled with awe. Many wonders and signs were being performed. Now I should clarify here, I'm not claiming that if we start meeting together and praying more frequently, that we're going to start cranking out some miracles. These were apostolic signs and wonders performed by the apostles. But the focus here is the awe, the dedication to one another and to the body of Christ, the love for one another. It says that they were together and held all things in common. Again, I'm not going to promote communism here, but a loving, healthy, functioning body of Christ will come together to care for one another, to help each other when one of us has a need. How many of you would even know if the person sitting next to you is struggling? Do we have close enough relationships with one another that we're that open that we would share that with each other and ask for help? Look at the dedication here this morning, church. They sold all their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all, to any who had need. Wow. What a contrast to the typical American church, am I right? Now, I'm not saying that we all need to sell everything and become a band of traveling gypsies, but the love and compassion for one another, the charity, the selfless acts. This early church is a shining example of the type of attitude and care that we should have for one another and for the body of Christ. When my family and I were down in Mexico uh, serving in a church in Bosque del Progreso, we kind of saw a glimpse of this. This neighborhood is dirt power, literally. Their floors are made of dirt. And the church would meet on Saturdays in the park, and a good portion of those that lived in this neighborhood would come out and meet together for the service to worship God, to study His Word, and to share a meal together. And these people literally have nothing. Most of them make less than $8 a day. 
Yet when we would meet, I was shocked to see how many of them were giving to the offering. I can't imagine living in a hut with dirt floors, not being able to afford food or diapers for my children, but still giving generously to the church. In our abundance here in the United States, we take everything for granted. Our jobs, our food. We have free health care and food stamps if you fall into hard times. But most importantly, we take the church for granted. There are churches all over the place. Many of them conforming to different sects of society and trying to tailor the church for a specific people's desires. The church just becomes part of our weekly routine, just a place that we go once a week so we can pay God his dues, as if two hours a week is all that he requires of us. We must repent of that. Christ's bride, the church, should not for a moment be taken for granted. I'm going to take a look at Ephesians 5.25 for a moment here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. So this passage in Ephesians is speaking primarily about the roles of husbands and wives, but we also get a good glimpse of how Christ views the church. Christ loves the church, so much so that he laid down his life for her. Not so that our church might become stagnant and taken for granted, but so that the church would become holy, washed by the water of the word, spotless, without wrinkle or blemish, perfect. Church, we should be striving to make ourselves, the church, the body of Christ, presentable to Christ. Our goal should be for the church to be perfect, holy, and blameless. And this is what we see in this morning's text in verse 46 and 47. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together. How many of us, if church were held every day, would come every day? It's not realistic, right? Not in our society. We're too busy. We have too much work to do. Our kids have softball practice. We need to get to the beach. But what has changed in the last 2,000 years? The Holy Spirit or our society? Now, I'm not naive. I know it won't work for, to have church every day. But you can see here in this morning's text, the church and the body of Christ thrive when they are given priority above all else. The Holy Spirit needs to be fed God's word. 
We need fellowship with the saints. It says that every day they went from house to house, breaking bread with one another, fellowshipping together, sharing meals, praising God with joyful and sincere hearts. Let's ask ourselves this morning, church, how often do we break bread with one another? If not together in, in corporate worship here, are we meeting together in each other's homes regularly, fellowshipping? You might ask yourself, why? What are some of the reasons it is important for the church to be so close, to be in constant fellowship with one another? Well, one important reason would be support. We need the support of other believers, of other people that we can rely on through thick and thin that we know are grounded in Christ and have godly intentions for us. We have a friend down in Mexico, a single mother who's constantly moving around and hopping from church to church and job to job and city to city. Now, I don't think she has bad intentions, but she's constantly on the verge of catastrophe because she doesn't have any support. She doesn't have family, and she doesn't have a church body that she belongs to. Brothers and sisters, it is a good thing to rely on one another. When you are a part of a church body, and more importantly, a close church body, you have a support network. You have something stronger than family. You have the body of Christ. Another important reason is for accountability. So let me ask you this. How many times have you heard of a pastor or a priest or, or someone in a church who seemingly had it all together being exposed for some hidden sin in their lives? Somehow they were able to slip through the cracks to live one life at church and another life at home. What was missing? Well, my suggestion would be that there wasn't accountability because the body of the church wasn't close enough to notice that something was wrong. When we are in constant fellowship with one another, when we break bread together, when we pray together regularly, it is much harder for our sin to stay hidden. You are also a lot less likely to fall into the trap of sin if you are preoccupied with the things of the Lord and are accountable to one another. Another great example is prayer. Philippians 4, 6 says, Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, when the body of Christ is close and praying together regularly, the peace of God guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I'm always so encouraged Sunday mornings when we meet together for prayer. Some of the deepest, most intimate moments that I have with my brothers and sisters in Christ have been shared right there Sunday mornings in the prayer room. It is good for us to come together, to come to one another with our burdens, and to ask for prayer, and to lift one another up. 
We need more and more of this. I would encourage you, church, come pray with us Sunday mornings. You truly will be blessed by it. And I would love to see us holding prayer means outside of this normal Sunday morning prayer. Not only for our benefit, but that we might glorify God through our prayers. Church, we need to be proactive in our efforts to meet together and to fellowship with one another. Not just in the church, through Bible studies, small groups, and Sunday school, but on an individual level as well. We can be inviting each other into each other's homes and fellowshipping throughout the week, encouraging one another and praying for one another. Brothers and sisters, our time here on this earth is short. James chapter 4 verse 14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. When our time here on this earth has passed and we stand before the throne, are we going to regret all the ball games that we missed? Are we going to wish that we had spent just a little more time at work and built up that retirement nest egg? Now let me ask you this. Are we going to regret any minute that we spend together as a church worshiping our Lord and Savior, studying His Word, and fellowshipping together? I encourage you, brothers and sisters, do not neglect the fellowship of the saints. Embrace one another. Pray for one another. Break bread with one another. Hold each other accountable. Focus your time, your energy, and your affections on Christ and on His church. And you will not regret a minute of it. And you will be truly blessed. And God will be glorified. We'll have an opportunity to fellowship and break bread together in a moment as we share a meal together this morning. So I'd encourage you, please, stick around. Fellowship with one another. If you aren't a regular attender at Providence, I would encourage you to please stay and break bread with us. We have unity in Christ. We would love to get to know you better. I would like to close this morning's message by reading from Psalm 67. If you have your Bibles, you could turn there with me. May God be gracious to us and bless us. May he make his face shine upon us, so that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations rejoice and shout for joy, for you judge the peoples with fairness and lead the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has produced its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the gift of the church, for the bride of Christ, Lord. We thank you for fellowship with one another, Lord. We thank you that you haven't called us to try to make it through this world on our own, but you have given us one another, Lord, to pray for one another, to disciple one another, Father. Father, we just pray that we wouldn't take this for granted, Lord. 
I pray that you would ignite in our hearts, Lord, a passion for one another, a passion for your church. Father, we pray that, that we would do this not for our benefit, Lord, but that you might be glorified. Father, that the church would be ready, Lord, that we would be spotless and without blemish for your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.